You're listening to a sermon podcast from Paramount Church in Columbus, Ohio. To learn more, visit ParamountColumbus.com. Well, amen to that. Let's be praying for our missionaries. Uh, when we hear these reports, it's, it's very exciting, and it gives us lots of opportunity and motivation for us to be praying and continuing to push forward for the gospel together. If you have your copy of God's Word, please turn with me this morning to our text, which is Philemon verses 17 through 25, Philemon, verses 17 through 25. I am so grateful as we start this new month to be here together in person. Uh, Some are still joining us through our live stream, and we're glad to have that available. But I'm grateful uh, this morning in particular because uh, I feel like I say it most Sundays, we are feeling our energy surge again. For those who are joining us maybe for the first time in person or online, you know, Paramount Church is a relatively young church, just eight years old. We celebrated our eighth birthday uh, just recently, last month, and we plan a celebration later in the summer when we can get outside and we can really, we can really do that right. We're grateful for the way that God is continuing to work in our church. You know, uh, when 2020 came, we were on a fantastic track of growth and ministry and service to one another and to our communities. We were uh, really exalting the gospel as we have continued. But then, as with most churches, 2020 threw us a serious curveball. And we, uh, we hit some quicksand like, like many churches did. But by God's grace, you, we, by God's grace, we hit that curveball. And now we're grateful that God is continuing to honor these efforts and our faithfulness as we look forward to the coming months, which we believe hold uh, lots of blessing for our church to get back our energy again. It's happening right now. So we are, we are so grateful for that. Uh, also, if this is your first week with us, uh, we have been in a new sermon series called Short and Stout. We're about halfway through it. And it's a unique series through the five shortest books of the Bible. Prior to that, we were in Hebrews. And then uh, after this, we will be moving back into the Old Testament. And then after that, uh, to the book of Revelation. We, We love to preach through books of the Bible for the most part throughout the year. And we wanted to give these five books of the Bible that sometimes are overlooked the attention that they deserve and for us to mine the truth from them and to gain strength, which we have been doing. And this morning, we come to the end of this shortest letter of the Apostle Paul called Philemon. We're coming to the very end of it, and then next week we will pick up with uh, Obadiah in the Old Testament. So we're grateful for how God is working through this, this study. You know, as we have been working through these shorter letters and books, and in particular Philemon, we have seen uh, what the Bible is so faithful and so helpful to give us, and that is the Bible gives us lived pictures of the truth that God has revealed in his word. Of course, the Bible teaches us propositional truth, certain things we are to believe. But in God's wisdom, the Bible often does that in the context of real life examples that help to give color and depth to what he has called us to be and do as Christians. And that's really something that I have taken away, uh, especially from this letter, because we have seen something so, so profound in so few verses. 
I even heard someone just the other day uh, say about this letter that uh, I was really surprised by what is there. I've probably read that a number of times in normal Bible reading plan, but uh, I'm picking up on some things that I didn't see before, and that's that's exactly what we want. It's the value of the lived example or the lived experience that Scripture is is putting on display for us. As we come to verses 20, uh, 17 through 25, I want to begin, I want to ask you a question. I want you to think just for a moment about this question, which is very simple. Do you think that all of this is real? What I mean is, do you think that all of this stuff that we talk about in our church is real? You see it on our on our uh, advertising, our banners and things, our four values, which, which play very heavily into our, the mission and ministry of our church, gospel, change, community, mission. We believe that there's this, this incredible good news that has come to us by grace alone as God has, has given us a savior and he's announced good news to us. People who have heard the bad news of God's law that we've not done the things that he commanded us to do and, and he's come to rescue us. We believe that through that gospel, change is possible in our lives, that that we can really change the real hard problems and habits and even sin patterns of our lives can change. And that those changes happen in the midst of a community that's called and equipped by the word of God to really care for each other, to really fellowship together, not just to be friends, not just to be acquaintances or neighbors, but to be brothers and sisters. And then as brothers and sisters, that that we care about the nations, like you just heard in this video, that God is at work saving sinners like us from around the world. He's bringing us into a, a, a huge, diverse, colorful, beautiful family. Do you think that all of this is real? I think that for all of us, we have to answer that yes and no. I think that there are seasons or there are parts of all that stuff that seems very real to you and to me. And I think there are parts of it that seem quite unreal. They, they seem kind of theoretical. In fact, I've heard people say that before. I've heard people say that about different things that, that healthy churches like ours are striving after. You know, we're doing it imperfectly, but we're, we're striving after them. And yet we, we sometimes feel that, don't we? We sometimes feel that, that all this stuff or some of this stuff, it's really just theoretical. It, it's, it's, it's a lot of good talk, but it's not very real. Usually, usually when we feel like that, when I feel like that, usually it's because there's been a breakdown somewhere. And I think it's the breakdown between a lived experience of something and a theoretical knowledge of something. You know, we talk up the big, the big game about community or about the gospel or about evangelism and missions, and yet there's something missing there, and it just doesn't seem very real. Well, I think that the answer to that, in part, one answer is, we are in desperate need of what the Bible gives us, which is not just facts and points, but lived pictures 
lived examples, both of things that happen in the scriptures that are recorded for us, all real events, real people going through real things, real problems, as well as the lived experiences that we see together as this truth and these examples multiply in our lives. That's what I'm so grateful for about the Word of God, and in particular, what we've been seeing in this short letter of Philemon. Because what we're hearing about is we're hearing an incredible truth and teaching about reconciliation, about restoration, about the work of grace in the deeper, darker places of life. But we're seeing it in real time. We're seeing it in real lives. And we want to see and recognize that even more in our real lives as we continue to to work through these texts and mine the truth that is in them. So as we look at this, I want you to consider the place of that in your life, that, that you would really be grabbing on to the lived pictures that Scripture gives to us and the lived pictures that you're seeing and experiencing together with each other. It's immensely important because we want to be the kind of people who confidently from the heart say, oh yes, this is real. This is real. All of this gospel change, community mission stuff, it's quite real. It's the most real. And without those lived pictures, without those lived pictures of of grace, that's what we're talking about, right? That's what we're talking about in this letter. That's what we're often talking about when we talk about the gospel and grace. We're talking about restoration. We're talking about reconciliation. The way that grace restores people to God himself and the way that, that the gospel, that God's grace restores people to each other. That's what we are talking about here. Without those lived pictures, this grace, it's, it's very easy, I think, for this grace to lose its luster. It doesn't seem quite so great. In fact, the grace of God, as we know, we've even, we've even talked about this in recent weeks, is under attack. It's always under attack at every point in history. The grace of God through Jesus Christ, is, it's under the attack of the world. It's under the attack of our own flesh. It's even under attack by, by the devil, our very real adversary. But to redeem a, a common motto today, what are we really after in our church? What are we after in the midst of this world, flesh, devil trio as a church, as brothers and sisters? We are most certainly out every week, every Sunday, every community group, every day to make this grace great again. That's what we're about. We want to make grace great over and over again, everywhere that we can. This ministry of reconciliation that God has given us. So this morning, as we look at these last few verses in this letter to Philemon, I want you to see these these just three truths that help us to understand what this central ministry of reconciliation involves and how God is at work in it, in our church and in our world, just as he was then and just as we read about here. Here's the first truth that uh, I want you to to write down and hold on to and and really take into your heart and think carefully about. As we think about the work of God's grace and restoration to one another and reconciliation, it is this. 
that the restoration of others who have, have, have always been, been unfaithful, right, as all of us have, and, and need to be reconciled or restored, always involves the sacrifice of the faithful. I'll show you what I mean as we look at these first few verses in our text, which is 17 through 25. Starting in verse 17, it says this. Paul is writing to Philemon, remember, and, and, and he's writing to Philemon, who is a, a, a leader in a church, and has recently had a, a slave or servant at this time run away and defraud him. And this servant has somehow met up with Paul. And as a result of, of meeting up with Paul in prison one way or another, the servant named Onesimus has come to Christ. He was formerly in darkness and blind. Now he has come to see Christ as who he really is. And it's changed his life. He is now linked with Paul forever as a spiritual son. And now Paul is sending him back to Philemon with the instruction that he would be received as a brother, not as a slave. He's, he's blowing that whole thing up and he's doing it through the gospel. And this is what he says uh, in these verses in verse 17. He says, if then you regard me, Paul, as a partner, accept him, Onesimus, as you would me. Incredible statement there. Incredible statement that Paul is making to, to equate himself with Onesimus. This, this kind of rebel guy who has run away in their, in their culture would have been a, a lower rung on the ladder. And yet now in Christ, Paul is saying, you should receive him just as you would me. We are, we are the same. We are in the same family, brothers in Christ now. But then he says this. He says, but if he has wronged you in any way, or owes you anything, which we believe he does, that somehow he's defrauded Philemon, either through being a bad steward of the resources entrusted to him, or perhaps by even just stealing from him and running off, Paul says, charge that to my account. He says, I'm writing this with my own hand. You could tell by Paul's writing that it was him. He says, I will repay it. Not to mention to you, that you owe to me even your own life as well. And what we're seeing here is we're seeing the way that when, when one person is restored to another or when one person is restored to God, there often, if not always, is a sacrifice by the faithful. Now that's something that, that kind of is hard for us to get our minds around because that's not the way that we typically think that it should work. We typically think that if you do something wrong, in order for you to be restored, it's simply a matter that you have to make it up. You have to sacrifice to get yourself back in line. But we see something radically different here. It's radically different in the gospel, isn't it? In fact, the whole gospel message is what? It's that you can't do anything to make it up to God. You can't impress God. There's nothing you could bring to him having broken his commands. He's infinitely holy and righteous. What has to happen? The faithful sacrifices for the unfaithful. We see this even in this simple uh, example, real life example here with Onesimus and Philemon and Paul. Paul says, if he owes you anything, I will repay you. I will work to get those funds or those resources and I will give those back. Now, what's so great about this picture is that we see 
both of the pieces that are common when people are reconciled or restoration happens, that there is a visible sacrifice often, but there's also an invisible sacrifice that must happen for people to come back together, for, for reconciliation to happen. First, you see that visible sacrifice. That's the easy one to find. It's this money that was defrauded, and Paul says that he will, he will repay it. This is incredible intentionality, incredible commitment to reconciliation. Paul is he's pulling out all the stops, anything that could get in the way of Philemon and Onesimus being reunited as believers, fellow believers. He doesn't want anything to stand in the way. So if that's going to be a hindrance, you don't worry about that. I will make sure that Onesimus, his debt to you, is made right. But also, there's an invisible sacrifice. Accepting someone else, often who's wronged you, by grace, is costly to you. That's that part that's so hard for us to get our hearts around. But when someone sins against us, we immediately feel the, the call of grace is that, that we are to forgive them. And it always feels like a burden on us. And in fact, it is, isn't it? There's a sacrifice that we make as gracious people toward others who have wronged us. I think that Paul, I, I know that Paul understands this but I think that that's why he makes his case the way that he does is because he foresees that this is a challenge for everyone. That's why I think he gives such a, a weighty appeal. He, he's calling him my partner. If we're partners, you consider me your partner in the gospel, we're linked together as, as brothers in the faith and as partners in ministry then you receive Onesimus back just as you would me. You would receive me, wouldn't you? He says, I'm the Apostle Paul. Who, who wouldn't receive the Apostle Paul if he came to your door? You would say, come on in. But when it comes to Onesimus, maybe not so much. Even if the financial part is taken care of, isn't there still this sting? There's the sting of having been wronged. But in order for forgiveness and restoration to take place, the rich kind of surprising truth is that it requires a sacrifice and it is a, a sacrifice of the faithful. It's a sacrifice that, that we have to make toward others and that's what it means to be gracious, is it not? Just as God has been gracious to us. But what's the reality? The reality is that, that when reconciliation is needed, and you have to receive someone else who perhaps has wronged you. Even in just daily life, this happens in our, in our homes, it happens in our workplaces, it happens out in the community. As people of grace who've been changed by the gospel, when this happens, isn't it kind of like you get your feet caught in some quicksand? I don't know why that is, other than just, you know, this is what sin does to us. It, it makes forgiveness, it makes showing grace hard. But it's like that, isn't it? It's like quicksand or it's like that dream. I have, a, I have like this recurring dream where I'm being chased by someone. But it's like my, my, my feet are in concrete, you know, and they're gaining on me. I can't get away. I had this dream all the time as a kid. Don't mean to scare you. But I had this dream all the time as a kid where I was running down the street toward my house being chased. And I get into the garage finally and I'm hitting the button on the garage to shut it. 
And it just, um, it could not shut any slower. And I can see this person chasing. Isn't that kind of the feeling when someone has sinned against you? When someone has abandoned you? When someone's really wronged you? It's like quicksand. Well, what we need is we need the grace of God to work in us and to change us and to fit us so that we can make that sacrifice. That's what's happening here. I know that that's what's happening here. Philemon is feeling the sting of betrayal. And Paul, the great Paul, he is calling him, charging him, appealing to him. You must receive him back as a believer now. And you must release him from his debt to you. He's no longer a slave. He left a slave. He's coming back as a brother. I'm taking care of whatever you have lost. Anytime this happens in our daily lives, if we're going to exalt grace, it means that we're going to have to overcome that sense of violation. And what's so hard is, it's always a sense of violation of my personal entitlement. I feel like you really owe me because of what you did to me. You have to make it right. Now, what's so hard about that is it's not, it's not always something tangible. It's not always something that somebody can give back. It's intangible. It's, it's, it's like you've, you've kind of stabbed me in my soul, and you're going to have to make it right. Well, friends, there's just no way. There's just no way for offenders to make that right. Only God can make that right, and he calls us to be like him and to make this sacrifice. We all feel, we all feel in our hearts this personal right to what we believe is just and fair, right? And it holds us back. But what we're seeing in this example, what we're seeing in the scriptures, what we see in the gospel is that by grace, we can offer grace and extend grace by our own sacrifice, by taking even in our own hearts, taking it to Christ, the sting of the injustice. And that is essential. It cannot happen unless this happens. Here's the beauty of grace. The beauty of grace is that grace comes and offers payment for the injustice. But the hard part is that we just don't naturally accept that, do we? Uh, you could probably put it this way. Imagine... Imagine that someone has, has defrauded you of something. I mean, you could say it's money, but money can be paid back. Probably a better way to put it is you wrap it all up and you maybe think about it as points. Because that's sort of what's happening in our hearts, right? We even say that. Somebody wrongs you, you say to a friend, boy, he really lost some points with me when he did this or that. So let's imagine that there are, there are 10 points, and someone comes along and through their mistreatment of you or sinning against you or disrespecting you or whatever's the case, they steal from you five points. But in this kingdom, there's a king who's rich in mercy. And he comes along and he says, I'll tell you what I'm going to do. I want you to receive back this person to yourself. I want you to forgive. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to pay those five points. On the basis of my grace, I'm going to take care of the debt and I'm going to free you. I'm going to free you to reconcile. For some reason, that's just hard for us. But it's necessary, isn't it? Because what we want to say is, that's very nice. 
That's very nice, king. You are abounding in grace, but this is not your five points to restore. It's his. I will not accept it unless it comes from him. You see, that's the way it so often happens in daily life, right? But that's not the way that it happens in the gospel. That's not the way that it happens between you and and the Lord. That's not the way that God saved you. You would never pay it back. You've stolen so many points from him. You could never pay it back. And that's why he sent his son. Right? His son comes with, with infinite points, infinite righteousness. And he, the faithful, makes the sacrifice. I do want to show this to you because I think it's an important, another picture. I want to show this to you. If you just turn back in your copy of the Bible to Matthew 18, I just want to briefly show you this, this great picture that we can take with us and be a reminder to us when we're in this situation and we want to make grace great, we need to remember this story. Now, you might recognize Matthew 18. It's the church discipline passage. It's the, it's the one where Jesus tells us what to do. If, if anyone in our church uh, falls into sin and runs away and is not coming back, we, we go to them, we, res- we, we seek to restore them and bring them back and bring reconciliation just like we're talking about here. We go as far as we can in that. And then as, as he's teaching his disciples this, Pick up in verse 21 of Matthew 18. Peter, who always has something interesting to say, he said to him, Lord, okay. So so we get all of that restoration stuff. But how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? He says, "Hmm, I'm thinking like seven seven times sounds pretty good. That sounds like a lot. And it does, doesn't it? Can you imagine someone coming to you seven times in one day to ask your forgiveness for the same thing? That sounds like a lot. Jesus says, I don't say to you up to seven times, but up to 70 times seven. He's trying to make it insurmountable. You know, it's like you can't even get your mind around it. That's the, that's the point. He, he's showing off the extravagance and the, 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 the abundance of God's grace. And then he tells a story. Here it is again. It's, it's this thing with this lived experience. He's giving us a story so that we can really get our hearts around it. So hear the story. He says, for this reason, the 70 times seven thing, for this reason, the kingdom of heaven can be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his slaves. When he had begun to settle them, one who owed him 10,000 talents was brought to him. Now, this is the 70 times 7 dynamic happening. It's just now being given a a money value so that you can understand what's at stake here. A talent was an amount of money or, or amount of wealth that if it was owed to someone, it could only be paid back after working for about 20 years. So this slave has incurred a debt before the master that is 10,020 years. You see what it is? It's an insurmountable debt. How long does it take this servant to pay back the debt? Working every day? 10 hours a day? 200,000 years. It cannot be done. It can't even be done with multiple lifetimes. And then he goes on. 
But since he did not have the means to repay, obviously, his Lord commanded him to be sold along with his wife and children, all that he had a repayment to be made. So the slave fell to the ground and prostrated himself before him, saying, have patience with patience with me and I will repay you everything. And the Lord of the slave felt compassion and released him and forgave him the debt. What an incredible sacrifice. He owed him 200,000 years wages and he forgave him. But what happens next? You probably know the story. The slave went out and found one of his fellow slaves who owed him 100 denarii. A denarii is a day's wage. 100 days wage. Today, uh, that, that's, that's $30,000 maybe on average. But that slave went out and found one of his fellow slaves. He owed him 100 denarii and he seized him and he began to choke him saying, pay back what you owe. So his fellow slave fell to the ground and began to plead with him saying, have patience with me. Same thing the, the other one said, and I will repay you. But he was... He was unwilling, and he went and threw him in prison until he should pay back what was owed. So when his fellow slaves saw what had happened, they were deeply grieved, and they went and told the king all that had happened. Then summoning him, his Lord said to him, you wicked slave, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. Should you not also have had mercy on your fellow slave in the same way that I have had mercy on you? And his Lord moved with anger, handed him over to the torturers until he should repay all that was owed him. My heavenly father will also do the same to you if each of you does not forgive his brother from, his, from your heart. That's an incredible picture. That's an incredible picture of the gospel, is it not? That is what Jesus Christ has done for us. 200,000 years of spiritual debt never able to be repaid. And on the sacrifice of his son, who is of infinite worth, he has forgiven you. And he has done it all by grace. This is the, this is the, the grounds of what Paul is telling Philemon to do. He is showing a small example of this. I will pay what is owed. Christ has paid the rest. All of the spiritual debt he has paid because now he has forgiven him. He's wiped his record clean. You receive him now as a brother. As we want to make grace great and to exalt the gospel, this is what one of the truths we have to remember is that reconciliation, it will require the sacrifice of the faithful. And yet God has given us grace to do this. So if you want to put this text to use in your life, I know that you do. I want you to. I want to. It begins here. We must prepare ourselves for that. Go ahead and settle into that reality. That if you want to be a person who is pro-reconciliation, be prepared to sacrifice. Be prepared to sacrifice on behalf of grace so that you can bestow it to others. But here's the second truth as we move on to verse 20 is that restoration or reconciliation with others has a, a beautiful, a beautiful benefit to it. It's not all sacrifice. In fact, I believe that this, the benefit, it, it overshadows even the sacrifice. It, it helps to make the sacrifice sweet. 
And that is that real restoration in the gospel between us, with God, it refreshes the hearts of the faithful even as they sacrifice. Paul says in verse 20, yes, brother, let me benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. You see, he is laying it on. He wants to see this reconciliation happen because it will all be to the exaltation of Christ and to the good news which they partnered together in. It's another living picture. And that's what Paul was all about. He was trying to make all the pictures that he could everywhere that he went, in season, out of season, in prison, out of prison, at all times in all lives. That's why he says at the beginning, yes. He's reinforcing the persuasiveness of his argument. But again, remember, we said this just over the last few weeks. What is the basis of his persuasiveness? What is his argument? His argument. His argument is joy. He is in pursuit of joy in his own heart. Brother, let me benefit from you in the Lord. It's, it's, our, it's, it's, it's his version of when we say, you know what? It would make me so happy if you would take this gift. It would make me so happy if you would allow me to do this for you. That's what he's saying. It would so make me happy. It would put my heart, he says, refresh my heart. It means it would put my heart at at ease. It would put my heart at rest. That's such an interesting thing to say. He is in pursuit of joy and he's making his own joy a central part of this whole reconciliation of two other people. As the reason they should reconcile, that they would increase joy together even even his own. You see, this is, the, this is the two-sided coin of Christians cooperating together. We've been talking about this over the recent weeks and trying to, trying to lift this up in our hearts because sometimes, it's again, it's one of those things that loses its luster. We, we lose our grip on it. We go back to some, some old ways. Here's the first side of the coin. The first side of the coin is a quest to make others glad in Christ. That's what we're doing with grace, right? That's what we do in the Christian life. That's why we care for each other. That's why we love each other. That's why we walk with each other. We want to increase the joy, the gladness that that we have, that you have. But also, there's a quest for personal joy in treasuring Christ. It's shining through in Paul's, Paul's words here. He is asking this to happen because he, he knows it will increase his own joy in Christ and that will be for the good of many people and even especially himself. You see, these two sides, they, they work together. In fact, they need each other in order for us to cooperate properly, even in the most simple ways. But this, again, is one of those things that we're just really slow to grab onto, aren't we? You know, I said this recently, and I think it bears repeating because I found it to be such, such a thing in my life, it's probably in your life too, is that there's, there's a kind of unbiblical view or version of the Bible's teaching of self-denial that hinders us in cooperating together. It casts a shadow over any pursuit of personal gladness in Christ as though it's selfish, 
It's selfish for you to, to seek your happiness in Christ and in the good of other people, to have your heart just, just overjoyed by what is happening in the lives of other people. Paul has no problem with that. He's even asking for it. Would you do this? Because it's going to fill me with joy and I'm going to glorify God with you for, for what he's doing. You see that? But it's so hard. It's so hard for us even in, even in basic ways. Here's an example we can probably get our, our hearts around. Let's, let's imagine that, that some Christians meet up maybe at the town center and they're going to make dinner plans. And one says to the other, hey, what sounds good to you? What sounds good to you tonight? And the other says, oh, no, I want you to decide. I want what you are going to be made happy with. And then the first one says what? Oh, no, I want what you want. What happens to those Christians in the town center going around in circles with the I want what you want, never mind me approach? They starve to death. <laughs> They're there all night and they never eat. It just doesn't work that way. In the end, no one is glad. But that's not the picture of Christian cooperation. The picture of Christian cooperation is the two-sided coin, pursuing both at the same time. And this is the beauty of reconciliation. It brings gladness to all. It requires us to work together for maximum gladness and the refreshing of one another. There's that mantra we've talked about a lot. God is most glorified in me or us when we are most glad in him or satisfied in him. Therefore, as people who want the glory of God, we believe and know these things are real. We are in pursuit of our gladness in Christ together. But notice again, what refreshed Paul? What was his heart really refreshed by? It wasn't by restaurants. It was by reconciliation. It was by the pursuit of restoration in the ministry of reconciliation as grace is exalted and bringing people together. Changing the dynamics of these relationships. His heart was going to be refreshed by seeing Philemon reconcile with Onesimus. That's his ultimate joy. That's what, what makes his heart rest. That, that's how you find rest in God. It is by reconciliation. And, and even in the daily aspects of life, reconciliation together brings us this rest. So how do we find this rest? How do we find this joy and gladness in our hearts? By rejoicing and partnering together in the gospel. That's what Paul is after. That's the second use. You can put this into work in your heart. The second use is that. Rejoice maximize your joy by partnering together in the gospel. Set your heart on that to make grace as bright and as glad and as joyful and satisfying as it possibly can be. And then third, here's our last truth. And this actually takes us to the very end of this letter and then, and then we move on to the next, next week. Is that restoration and reconciliation of others does something else incredible. It also motivates the generosity of the faithful. 
It motivates even more generosity as these stories happen or they come out. Philemon, as we know, is a a faithful, imperfect. He has his blind spots for sure, but he's a faithful, mature Christian. And knowing that, what is Paul resting his confidence in? He's resting his confidence in that Philemon is the kind of person who by grace will be generous in peacemaking. That's why he appeals to him. He doesn't command him, he appeals to him. And so he says in verse 21, having confidence in your obedience. He's fully expecting that Philemon is gonna hear these words from Paul. God, by the Holy Spirit, is gonna work in Philemon's heart and he's gonna say, send him back. I will receive him. I'll receive him as a brother. We'll become partners in ministry. We're gonna have a totally different relationship. Look at what grace has done. That's what his confidence is in. In your obedience, he says, I write to you since I know that you will do even more than what I say. Paul has appealed to Philemon to receive Onesimus back as a brother, not a slave, which replaces their arrangement, but something else is happening in the midst of this. It's something else that Paul knows and anticipates. And it is that in the pursuit of making grace great, it is like a snowball down a hill. It doesn't just happen in, in individual one-off instances. It rolls and it grows and it gets bigger and bigger. Even here in this text, there's a feeling of momentum. It's raining over the situation. And it is amazing considering the situation. The ongoing work of Christ among them leads them to keep on ministering, keep on pursuing gladness, keep on showing grace. It builds upon itself. Again, to bring this down to earth, you have this experience, you, you have this, it's kind of built into our lives in other areas. I think, I think God does that to, to give us a sense of what's, what, what happens spiritually. You know, I don't mean to be sacrilegious or anything and comparing it this way, but when you sit down, or probably more common, lie down, to like binge on Netflix or Amazon Prime or Discovery Plus or Disney Plus or all the others, you feel an energizing effect. You don't feel like you can do anything else as long as you end up being able to do that, do you? Why is that? Why is it that, that, that there is this thing called binging Netflix where you just go episode after episode after episode? For one, it just triggers the next one, but you, you keep watching, don't you? It's the same dynamic. It's the repeated story building. And as it builds, your momentum builds, your interest builds, your commitment builds, and now it's four in the morning. Because it has, it has fueled your commitment. It's the same thing that is happening here. That's what Paul is talking about. I know that you will do even more than what I say. Why? Because with every episode of God's grace at work, it fuels you to see another one. It energizes you. It picks you up. It pushes you out into the world because you want to see another one. You see one person come to Christ and you can't wait to find someone else. 
You don't have one person come to Christ and then you say, well, it's seven o'clock, guess I'll go to bed. Do you? You say, who's next? Play it again. Go to the next episode. That's what's happening here. For Paul and for us, the key is giving attention to these episodes, giving attention to these these stories, these lived examples and experiences. You, You have to look at them. You have to embrace them and pursue them. You have to journal them, write them down, remember them and build on them. We're energized by the the thought of the next. And as we read here, our energy and our generosity in magnifying and rejoicing in grace, it surges. That's what we want to get back to, having come out of a rough year. That quicksand slowed us down, but we're getting back. We're getting back to normal. And our normal, our normal in our church ought to be the surging grace of God. Surging work to exalt him and to see other people come to know him and to love him and for us to grow in him. And that's why Paul is doing this. And I think that's why the letter ends the way that it often does with Paul. Notice how it ends and then we come to the end of our time in this text, verse 23. He says Epaphras starts naming people. He's naming people, he's naming stories. He's reminding of other people who are partnering together because it undergirds Philemon in this appeal. We're all with you. The team is moving forward. Let's go. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, he greets you. Remember Epaphras? He's with us. He's with you. We're moving forward. As do Mark and Aristarchus, Demas, Luke, my fellow workers. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. He keeps telling these stories. In fact, if you go to Colossians and you look in Colossians, you'll find somebody else mentioned there because it seems that that letter may have accompanied this letter and you see another name. Whose name is that? It's Onesimus, our beloved brother in the faith. It is the surging, swelling, cresting wave of God's gospel in the world. And that brings us to our last use or application of the text. And that is this. You and I have got to be intentional and more intentional about hearing and telling stories of God's grace at work in people's lives. We've got to, we've got to increase our binging on these stories, on these examples, to fuel one another so we want to be that kind of we want to be that kind of church. As we come to a close of this time and prepare our hearts to sing again, I want you to bow your heads as we pray. We ask God to, to bless us as we come to the end of this little letter and we move on to another. We don't want to move on too quickly. We want the seeds of truth here to, to bear fruit in our hearts. We ask God to do that, do that in us. And also to remind you that if you're here and you're not a Christian, you need to come to Christ today. You need to to turn from your sin and place your trust in him just as the Bible commands you to and offers you to because he's a gracious God. You've got nowhere else to turn. And then you need to become part of a body of believers that can keep moving together, walking together and growing. There's nothing better, nothing better than that that you could do today. Do not wait.
even as we pray for you and for the rest of us this morning. Our Father, thank you for your grace. We, we know that these things are real. But Lord, sometimes we forget, and sometimes uh, clouds of life overshadow them and it becomes kind of dark, and we, we think it maybe it's just all kind of theoretical. We need, we need these stories to resonate in our hearts, echo in our hearts. So we pray, we pray that your Holy Spirit would do that in us. Cause your grace to echo over and over again. We are looking forward to these coming months. Lord, we pray that you would surge the energy of our church for the sake of your glory, for the good of our neighbors and our our own souls. And as we're all facing difficult things in this life, even in this time, we pray that your grace would minister to our hearts. Give us hope. Energize us for you. And give us wisdom so that we know how to move forward uh, together in all of these wonderful things you're doing in our midst. We give you so much thanks because you have been gracious to us, abounding, abounding in grace. We want to be people who are committed to restoration and reconciliation, all by the gospel. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. (laughs) 